If you'll devote your full attention to the reading of God's word today from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the apostles and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. How many of you think of yourself as having lived during the Cold War? Curiosity. Okay, yeah. Dare I say a, a decreasing number. <laughs> yeah, it started a long time ago now. But during the Cold War, uh, there was a label that you wanted to avoid, especially if you were American. Uh, you wanted to avoid the slightest accusation of harboring communist sympathies, right? Especially if you were an employee of the U.S. government. And that label was especially dangerous during a period of time from like 1950 to 54, uh, when a gentleman by the name of Senator McCarthy and his crew roamed the halls, shall we say, looking for someone to devour. And I, I doubt any of you experienced a, an identical fear this week. I don't think anybody woke up, I'll just go ahead and assume, wonder if anybody's going to out me as a communist. But I do think all of us can relate to the fear of being outed or discovered for believing or saying or doing something that a majority of people around us strongly disapprove or would get us in trouble. Could be a, your family, your friends, or, or your coworkers. And I think it increasingly goes without saying that you don't gain popularity points in our culture right now by identifying as a follower of Christ. The burden of proof, because people get suspicious, right? As soon as they you're a Christian? Oh. The burden of proof falls on you, does it not, to prove that you're not one of those Christians, one of those judgmental types that, that has the audacity to believe right and wrong are not ours to define. And so it's really easy to walk up to a group of strangers, and, and if we're honest, we're silently wishing, I sure hope no one finds out I'm a Christian. Because, you know, they'll probably think I'm weird, and then they might not want to be my friend. Now, we don't go around holding signs that say that, right? But have you ever thought that in your heart or mind? I'm not sure I, I want to be outed right now as a Christian. And, and if you throw our natural fear of man, right, worry about what other people think of us because we crave their approval, you throw that into a cultural moment that, that treats religion as a private matter, strictly private, that respectable people keep under wraps, especially in the public square, 
You throw those things together and you have a perfect recipe for being anxious over being outed as a Christian. And I think it becomes really tempting in response to just circle the wagons, keep our head down, and try to hide in our Christian social bubble and wait for Jesus to come back. But friend, you're sorely mistaken if you think that Jesus' agenda in our cultural moment is to tiptoe into our circle, part the wagons, come in, hey guys, shh, here's the plan. I want you to keep your head down. I want you to be quiet. I want you to not make eye contact. Don't row the boat, rock the boat. Just hang in there and I'll be back before you know it. Shh. <laughs> Matthew 5, verse 14. What's it say? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill, by the way, that's not America, cannot be hidden. <laughs> this is the church, friends, right? Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So think about it this way, okay? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is on a mission to make you visible. Like it or not, that's his mission. You might want to hide. You might feel like not being outed as a Christian. Jesus is working in the opposite direction. His mission is to draw sinners to himself. And he gets that mission done. He, he reveals to the world what he's like by saying, hey, look over there. Do you see my people? Do, do you see the church? I want you to look there because when you look at them, you'll see me. You'll see what I'm like, not perfectly, but faithfully. You'll, you'll see a reflection of my glory and my beauty and, and my power to save. I, I want you to know me, so look at them and listen to them and watch them. First Peter 2 verse 9, why? Because you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim. There's nothing Circle the wagons about that. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So think about that. Making Christians visible, clearly distinguishing Jesus' people from the rest of the world is so essential to his mission. So critical to what God is up to in the world today that he hasn't left it up to us as individuals to make that distinction on our own. He's given his authoritative representative on earth, the local church, responsibility for, for confirming who's part of the people of God and who's not. Where should the world look to see Jesus and where should it not? Matthew 16, verse 19 I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. 
Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Translation, you don't get to independently affirm whether your profession of faith is genuine. Why not? Because Jesus knows the possibility for self-deception is too great, right? He's ultimately entrusted that responsibility to the church. So it's our job as a church to publicly affirm genuine professions of faith. And that public act of mission-critical judgment where we are affirming genuine professions of faith, where do you think that begins? What begins with baptism? Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So remember the the series we're in, right? Sunday matters. So what does the Lord want us to do when we gather to worship him? One of the most important things, friends, is he wants us to be careful and joyful in our practice of baptism. It's part of the Great Commission. That should suggest to you, if it hasn't already, it's kind of a big deal in Jesus' eyes. So let me give you a definition of baptism that that I think draws from what the whole Bible teaches us on this subject. And then we're going to look and see how that plays out, especially in Acts chapter 2, okay? So here's my attempt at a definition. Baptism is the church's public affirmation of a profession of faith signifying a believer's entrance into covenant relationship with God and his people. I know that's a mouthful. We're going to take time to grasp that, okay? What's baptism? It's the church's public affirmation of a profession of faith signifying, marking, indicating, testifying to, affirming a believer's entrance into covenant relationship with God and his people. So where do we see that in Acts 2? Well, let's let's understand a little bit of the background here. So Acts 2 picks up, especially verse 36 where Stephen began reading, on the day of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. And it's the end of the Apostle Peter's first recorded sermon. So he's just finished explaining from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is our Savior King. Look at verse 36, Acts chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, look at what he says next whom you crucified. Can you imagine someone preaching to you and looking you in the eyes, speaking about Jesus and saying, and you crucified him. You killed him. You killed the son of God, guys. Well, in that moment, On that day, the risen Lord gave Peter's hearers an exceedingly precious gift, friends. It's called the gift of conviction. Conviction of sin. They didn't remember no one's perfect. 
They didn't realize we've all made mistakes. They, they sensed in the depth of their soul the depth of the rebellion and wickedness against the Lord. That's what conviction is. They felt the weight of their guilt before the judge of all the earth. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? If we've killed the Son of God, what do we do? I wish that some of you listening to me right now would ask the same question. Because that's the cry of a convicted sinner. That's, that's the cry of a soul awakened. You, you know you're not right with God. You, you feel the depth of your guilt and no matter how hard you try to be good and make up for that and scrub that away, you can't make that go away. And you feel that. It's real. And I want you to know, friend, to the degree you feel that, God is giving you an exceedingly good gift. A good gift. Why? Because it's called despairing of saving yourself. Right? And it is the gate through which every Christian must pass if we're ever to trust the only one who can. Look at verse 38. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says to them as they're experiencing the grace of conviction, Peter said to them, repent. What do you do? Guys, repent. To repent is to, is to turn from your sins, to, to forsake and renounce your sins, to humbly confess before God Almighty, not just, I've made mistakes, we've all done things wrong. No, I have sinned against heaven and against man. I am wicked, Lord. And we don't, we don't confess that. We don't repent as some sort of, let me try to self-atone through feeling bad about what I've done. As if maybe if I grovel enough or feel horrible enough about myself, well then God will say, there, there, that's enough. I love you anyway. No. We repent because absent repentance, we'll never find mercy. You, you can't have the world. You, you can't keep clinging on to your sin and also have Jesus. You can't do that. You can't have chocolate and vanilla, if you would, okay? It's, it's one or the other. And repentance means turning away from sin so we can what? Turn toward trusting and living for and obeying Jesus. It's what it is. Look at verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent, turn away from sin, and what does this turning toward Jesus look like? Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized. I want to linger on that word. That's our topic this morning. And just ask a few simple questions, okay? What is baptism? Who participates in baptism? And what happens when you're baptized? 
Okay, very simple. What is baptism? Who participates in baptism? And what happens when you're baptized? So let's ask the first question, what is baptism? Peter says, repent, be baptized. What does that mean? Well, well, the Greek word for baptism means to dip or immerse. So in the New Testament, it means to go under the water and come up out of the water. How do we know that? John 3, verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. So why would Peter say, think about this, why would Peter say that if you want to become a Christian, you need to repent and be baptized? Because that's what he's saying. Well, he's saying that because, friend, baptism is more than an outward sign, okay? It's an outward sign of an inward reality. And what is that inward reality? First and foremost, what's baptism? It's a profession of faith in Christ. That's answer number one. So we have to start. If someone asks you, Christian, what must I do to be delivered from sin and the divine judgment that my sins deserve, what would you say? What do I need to do to become a Christian? Well, I think many of us would say what, what Paul said to the, the jailer in Philippi later on in Acts, chapter 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Repent and believe. So that raises a question, does it not? Do you become a Christian by doing what Peter says in Acts 2, repent and be baptized, or by doing what Paul says in Acts 16? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Which one is it? Repent and be baptized or believe Jesus? As I like to often point out, it is what, Josh? Yes! Exactly. It's both. It's both. Why? Because baptism is a public profession of faith in Christ Jesus. The faith through which we are saved. As as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21, baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's an expression of faith in him. Bobby Jameson says it this way, baptism renders faith public. I like that. It gives the believer, the church, and the world something to look at. Remember, when when you trust in Christ, you make that decision visible in baptism. And this helps us explain, understand why the New Testament authors often speak of baptism in ways, listen, that could be taken to indicate that the blessing of salvation comes through baptism itself. When they wanted to refer to conversion as a unified whole, the New Testament authors often deployed baptism as shorthand for the whole thing. So if you're a captain of a sailing ship and you pipe down to the lower decks, all hands on deck! Do you yell that because you expect 200 hands, literally, to come tumbling with their fingers out onto the deck? (laughs) No. No, what is it? What, What is that? It's a metaphor, it's a way of, by referring to the part, the sailor's hands, you're asking for what? The whole. And that's what's going on. Going under the water and coming up out of the water doesn't accomplish anything absent repentance and faith. 
But if you're a Christian, that outward action is what? A profoundly significant expression of faith. It's where we give voice to faith. It's where we announce our faith and go public with our faith. So baptism is a profession of faith in Christ. Second, it's a symbol of union with Christ. Look back at verse 38. Notice Peter doesn't say here, just repent and be baptized. He says what? Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why does he say that? Remember, there's, there's never throwaway in Scripture. In the name of Jesus Christ. Well, because faith expressed in baptism, please, please listen very carefully to this. Faith expressed in baptism, that brings us into an intimate spiritual union with Christ. Notice I didn't say baptism does that. I said the faith expressed in baptism does that. Intimate spiritual union with Christ where his experience becomes our experience and his blessings become our blessings and his relationship with God becomes what? Our relationship with God. Through union with him, we acquire, as it were, his name, what is true about him and what he enjoys because of who he is. The the Apostle Peter, actually the Apostle Paul, describes as much. If if you flipped over to Romans 6, we'll project this in verse 4. Paul says, We were therefore buried with him, Christ, by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, notice that, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Amen. No union with Christ, no hope, friend. It's that simple. So have you ever stopped back, you know, kind of stepped back to wonder, Lord, okay, so why baptism? Why this Going under the water, coming out of the water. I mean, that seems easy enough. Why not say, climb Mount Kilimanjaro? Or perform some, you know, pilgrimage to Jerusalem, walking 200 miles on your knees. And just, really? Well, what's up with that? Well, the Lord ordained baptism as the way we go public with our faith because it symbolizes two very important things. It's not random, okay? When we go under the water, what's that a symbol of? Of dying, of dying. If you stay under the water and you do not have a scuba tank, what will happen to you? You will die, right? Baptism declares that when you become a Christian, you have died. What? Yeah, died to what? Died to the guilt of sin. Died to the power of sin. It it is as if you died when Jesus died because all the saving benefits of his death through that faith union with him have now become your own. As Peter says in Acts 2.38, that starts with what? The forgiveness of your sins. That's only possible when, when blood is shed, Right? So we go into the water, it's a symbol of dying with Christ. What, what, is, what is coming up out of the water then symbolize? <laughs> yes, resurrection. New life with Christ. Because Jesus didn't remain dead. 
He didn't stay in the grave. Death, death couldn't hold him. Sin could not master him. And so in the same way, Christian, if you've been united to Christ, not just in this life, but in, in our life to come, for all eternity, all who have been united to him by faith have been freed from the guilt and power of sin to walk in newness of life. Which, praise God, is one day going to include an immortal body. Amen? As we love to sing, because Jesus rose, we too will rise. So, so baptism, profession of faith, symbol of union with Christ. Third, it's a picture of cleansing from the guilt of sin. So in Acts twenty two sixteen, Paul is reporting the words that a Christian brother named Ananias spoke to him when Paul himself was laboring under the conviction of sin. God, God decked him, literally, on the road to Damascus. And he's laboring under convic- conviction. He's gone blind. What a picture that is of spiritual blindness that we all must deal with. And Paul says that Ananias told him, and now why do you wait? What are you waiting for, Paul? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Does going under the water, like some sort of magical rite, literally wash away your sins? No. No. How are sins washed away? Sins are washed away as a result of faith in Christ, as a, in response to calling on the name of the Lord. I can't cleanse myself. I can't save myself. Jesus, save me. Cleanse me. I trust you to do that. But how do we call on the name of the Lord? What did Ananias say to Paul? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So when we call on his name, we profess that, we express that through baptism. And what happens as a result? Jesus doesn't turn a blind eye to your sin. He doesn't pull a grandpa card. Boys will be boys. What does he do? He washes and removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. Praise God for that. It's a symbol of cleansing from the guilt of sin. And and notice also that Ananias doesn't say, I keep flagging this, repent and believe. That surprise you? I mean, what would you say to Paul? I don't know if I would say be baptized. To repent and believe. Well, Well, why does he say repent and believe? Why does he say rise and be baptized because Ananias knows something that we forget. He knows that God has ordained baptism as a means by which we express our faith in him. We forget that. In other words, think, think of it this way, okay? God hasn't just ordained the substance of our confession. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's also ordained the form of our confession. Rise and be baptized. And embracing both the substance and the form are critical if we're going to respond in obedience to King Jesus. That's what he's teaching. So it's a picture of cleansing from the guilt of sin. Lastly, what's baptism? It's a sign of the new covenant. 
Okay, and here I'm gonna wade into some controversial waters without apology. So listen carefully, okay? Because there are faithful Christians that disagree on this issue. But I wanna explain to you what I see clearly taught in scripture, all right? So think about this. How did Israelites, before the coming of Christ, identify themselves as part of the covenant people of God? There's circumcision, right? They were circumcised. And that, that act, a physical act, was a malediction of sorts. What in the world is that? <laughs> well, in the same way a physical part of my body has been cut off, may I be spiritually cut off from the blessings of relationship with Yahweh if I fail to keep the requirements of the covenant. Okay, that's a malediction. It's kind of a self-curse. And so circumcision of the body, this is the important point, from the very beginning symbolized the required circumcision of the heart, a spiritual consecration to the Lord's priorities and purposes from the get-go. But, but sadly, if we look back on the history of Israel and Scripture, what do we see? Well, they, many of them, they're not all, were circumcising their bodies, but many of them, they failed to circumcise their heart. They had the physical mark, but their heart was unchanged. So God did what? God promised to do for them what they could not do for themselves. Why do you think I asked Josh to read from Ezekiel this morning? Because it's where the Lord describes what he's going to do. I'm going to give you a new heart and enable you to faithfully follow the Lord. I'm going to do that, Israel, because you're failing abysmally at that. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Listen, and no longer shall each one of my people teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. All my people will know me. Not a mixed company. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. So under the old covenant, it made total sense to tell a fellow member of the people of God, Hey, you, know the Lord. You need to know the Lord. Why? Because you could become a member of God's people simply by being circumcised. It didn't actually mean that you were really right with God. You could be a member of the ethnic people of God, ethnically defined, have the physical mark of circumcision, but not be right with God. That changed radically because of Jesus, friends. The new covenant changed that. God's people were reconstituted by the internal work of the Spirit and are now identified not by a physical mark in our bodies, but by a spiritual profession of faith in Christ. That's a big change. Colossians 2 verse 11. In him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
So because there can be a lot of confusion on this relationship between circumcision and baptism, let me try to put it as simply as I can, okay? Baptism is like circumcision in that the physical act functions as a boundary marker. Okay, it, it publicly identifies who is part of the people of God. It's like circumcision in that sense. But baptism is unlike circumcision, please hear this, in that it is not an expression of hope that one day the heart will be circumcised. It's a present expression of personal faith in Christ made possible because the heart has already been circumcised through the regenerating work of the Spirit. That's how it's unlike circumcision. It's not, I sure hope this will happen in the future, It's an expression, a profession of present faith in Christ that is only possible because the Holy Spirit has circumcised the heart. Because it's true of all God's people now. As Peter says in Acts 2 verse 38, all who are baptized enjoy what? The forgiveness of sins and the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. So so baptism is, if you think of it this way, an initial sign of the new covenant by which we identify those who have entered the new covenant and embraced its ethical requirements. Whereas Paul says to the Galatians, Galatians 3 verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. You're you're fighting to obey him in, in every area of life. So, after a quick tour, what is baptism? Well, it's at least four things, okay? It's a profession of faith in Christ. It's a symbol of union with Christ. It's a picture of cleansing from the guilt of sin. And it's a sign of the new covenant. It's, it's how those, if you look at verse 39, whom the Lord calls to himself, go public with their faith. So that's what it is. Now, question two, who participates in baptism? That's what it is, who participates. So, so let's think about this. Since the Bible speaks of faith and repentance and baptism as what? A unified whole. It's bound together. You can't separate those things. The only people who should be baptized are those who have chosen to turn from sin, repent, and express faith in Christ Jesus. Believe. Those are the only people who should be baptized. It's a personal response to the conscious conviction of sin. Why do I say that? Because those whom, to whom Peter extends the grace of baptism in verse 38 are what? Those who have experienced the conviction of sin in verse 37. Because they have what? Understood and heard the word of the gospel in verses 14 through 36. You can't separate those things. So baptism is only, in short, for Christians because the spiritual realities that it represents and signifies are only true for Christians. If you're not a Christian, you haven't been united to Christ. If you're not a Christian, you haven't been cleansed of the guilt of your sin. So how should we decide, as a church, if someone's ready to be baptized? Well, this is one of those questions that pastors spend a lot of time working on and talking with people about. We should only baptize someone who has what I think is helpful to call a credible profession of faith. 
credible profession, okay? What do I mean by that, a credible profession? Well, think about this. Did you notice that in scripture, nobody ever baptizes themselves? You ever notice that? I mean, it can be one of those things that's kind of there the whole time, but we don't actually stop to think about the significance of that. Nobody ever baptizes themselves. There's always more than one person involved. Sometimes the most important truths are found in the obvious. There's the person getting baptized, and there's the person baptizing them. And that is incredibly important, friends. Why? Why am I making a big deal of that? Because baptism, remember, isn't just a public profession of faith in Christ. It's what? The church's way of publicly affirming that profession of faith in Christ. It's the way that we say to the watching world, look over here, see this person being baptized? That's what a genuine follower of Jesus Christ looks like. We're doing that as a church when we baptize someone. It's an affirmation of their profession. So if God calls us to only baptize disciples of Jesus Christ, then what do we have to discern before we proceed? Is this person a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do, do they have a credible profession of faith? Are they a genuine Christian? Which means we need to ask them to walk through an eight-year probation period where they demonstrate spotless observance of all God's commands, and then we baptize them like giving them an Eagle Scout badge. No. No. Why not? Because Peter summoned those who were convicted of sin to respond by professing their faith in Christ through baptism immediately. We gotta remember that. But there's another ditch on the opposite side of the Boy Scout marriage badge, Boy Scout merit badge approach, if I can call it that that I would argue is not one bit less dangerous. And we tend to forget this one. So I want to linger here. And it's the ditch of false assurance. And giving that to someone by baptizing them before they really have a credible profession. I, I can't tell you the number of times, friends, that as a pastor, I've been in conversation with someone, tell me about your story with Jesus. And they say something like this. Well, I was baptized at age fill in the blank. But I don't think I really became a Christian until fill in the blank with a later age. I hear that all the time. So, does God delight to save eight-year-olds? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. But when someone is eight years old, it's really hard to distinguish an individual response to the invitation of the gospel from a desire to do what everyone else is doing or what they think might please mom and dad or grandma. Speaking as a dad with kids in this age group, it's really hard to figure out why do you want to do this? So does that mean we shouldn't baptize anyone under 18? course not. It does mean we should be very, very careful about giving a young person a false assurance of salvation by baptizing them before they have a credible profession so that we protect our public witness to the gospel. Why, why do I make a big deal of this? Because let's be honest, 
there are men and women who were baptized as children in this church who are no longer following Jesus. And I could give you a number of names. Because when they entered high school or college and began to finally make their own decisions, they were no longer controlled by parental forces outside of them, as it were. It became clear their profession of faith was not genuine. So, if a child comes up to me, because they do, and they say to me, Pastor Matthew, I want to be baptized. (laughs) What do I say? Do you have a credible profession of faith? (laughs) No. You know what I say? I get down on their level and I say, this is so exciting. So exciting. Because it is crystal clear to me that God is working in your life, young man. God is working in your life. Can we just throw a party and celebrate that? And then can we have a conversation together? I want to talk with you because I want to ask questions like, what is the gospel? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to repent? And I'm not looking for a quote that I could stick in a theology book. I'm looking for in an age-appropriate way, do they grasp what it means? Look at verse 41, to receive the word of the Lord, the gospel. Or verse 40, what does it mean to save yourself from this crooked generation? Well, Grandma said I should ask Jesus in my heart, and Jesus seems like a cool guy. That's a far cry from save yourself from this crooked generation, right? So conversation's needed. Notice Peter's hearers, they grasp the truth of the gospel. I've said this before in verses 14 to 36 before they experience the conviction of sin in verse 37 and were urged to respond with baptism in verse 38. So if you don't understand the gospel, the whole sermon beforehand, then you're not ready to be baptized no matter how old you are because this isn't just a kid thing, okay? So last question, What happens when you're baptized? That's who participates, a Christian and the church, credible profession, the church. What happens when you're baptized? Let me give you three answers here and we'll close with this. First, you obey Jesus by going public with your faith. Person being baptized, you obey Jesus by going public with your faith. Look at verse 38 again. Notice Peter doesn't say, repent and believe, and when you feel really confident in your salvation, consider the possibility of talking to somebody about the option of baptism. He doesn't say that. He says, repent and be baptized. It's a command. That's a big deal, friends. Because, please hear this, we don't get to decide how we want to profess our faith. We don't. Jesus tells us how to profess our faith. And it involves a whole lot more than just baptism, but it begins and starts with baptism. It's our first act of obedience, as it were. It's how we announce to the church and to the world, hey, I'm gonna follow King Jesus. To just use other metaphors, it's, it's how we nail our flag to the mast. 
or put on the team uniform or, or take a public oath of citizenship in the, the kingdom of God. So what we observe in verse 41, and those who received his word were baptized, happens over and over and over and over again in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter eight, verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And there's always blessing when we obey the Lord, right? Every time we obey Jesus, there's blessing. And the Lord will often use the experience of baptism to do something incredibly significant, to increase our assurance of salvation, our understanding of the depth of what Christ has done for us. Remember though, even as I say that, that baptism doesn't do a lick of good apart from the presence of faith, right? So if you don't have faith in your heart, trust in Jesus, you just got wet. (laughs) That's all that happened. But to the eye of faith, what happens? Baptism provides an objective, visible reminder of what Christ has done for us. To the person getting baptized, I, I have died with Christ. I've been raised with Christ. I'm, I'm committing my life to follow Jesus. And as a result, the answer to the who am I question has fundamentally changed. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a child of God. I'm no longer bound to guilt and shame. I'm cleansed in Christ. It confronts you as you're baptized with those deep spiritual assurances. That is a precious gift, friends. It's why it's called a sacrament, a means of grace. So you obey Jesus by going public. Second, the church obeys Jesus by publicly affirming your profession. I keep coming back to this because it's important. Baptism isn't merely about what you're doing. It's just as much about what the church is doing. It's how we exercise the authority Jesus has given us as a church to identify who's a disciple of Christ because we fulfill the great commission by marking out in the eyes of the world who's a genuine follower of Christ and who's not so they know where to look to see Jesus. Again, Bobby Jameson writes, look at this as the, some of the children join us here. Baptism is therefore a necessary though not sufficient criterion by which the church is to recognize Christians. It's not enough for someone to claim to be a Christian or for everyone in the church to think someone is a Christian. Really important. Jesus has bound the church's judgment to baptism. Jesus gave us baptism in part so we can tell one another apart from the world. Here's the final result. What happens when you're baptized? Look at verse 41. You are added to the body of Christ. And I want to linger here for just a minute, guys. And a big welcome to all of you kids, by the way. Brings me great joy to be preaching God's word and watch all of you come in. I want to linger here because I think this is another one of those we really tend to miss it and overlook it. Just like we think, well, yeah, there's only one person involved in baptism. It's the person getting baptized. Everybody else is just sort of props. No. No. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were what? What's the next word? Added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? 
the baptismal roll? <laughs> no, added to the church. Acts 2.47 makes this crystal clear. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So when we're united to Christ, which is what our baptism symbolizes, remember that? If you're united to Christ, who else are you united to, friend? His body. Remember I said last Sunday, you can't be united to the head without being united to what? The body. You can't get a, a decorpulated Christ. <laughs> It's a package deal, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. The church. Jews, Greeks, slaver free. And, and it is striking to me, in verse 41, how Luke describes church membership as a spiritual reality created by baptism. It's striking. He doesn't say, listen, so those who received his word were baptized and then from that number, sometime later, 3,000 people decided to eventually become members of the church. <laughs> what does he say? They received the word they were baptized. And that meant, this package, what? 3,000 people were added to the church. In other words, you could say 3,000 souls were added to the church, or you could say 3,000 souls repented and were baptized. Two sides of the same coin. So does that mean we should do away with our church membership class? And all you have to do to become a member of the church is to be baptized. Be baptized, immediately become a church member, end of story. I don't think so. <laughs> I think there's wisdom in taking a few weeks. We're gonna announce our membership class in just a few weeks coming up. Take a few weeks to help people understand what does it mean not just to be a member of the church universal, but of this particular local church. But at the same time, I think verse 41 warns us, friends, in strong terms, it is most unwise, most unwise, for us to treat baptism as membership as, as two entirely separate things. That you can just sort of pick one and then eventually if you want to get around to the other, think about it. No. What is church membership all about? It's agreeing to affirm and oversee our mutual profession of faith. That's what church membership is. Okay, it's how we, we hold one another accountable for following Jesus. That's what church membership is all about. So when does that affirmation begin? It begins with baptism. When we baptize someone. And yet, think about this. If we baptize them and then postpone or just punt on church membership, we're basically saying something like this. We're thrilled to recognize you as a member of the body of Christ, but we're not actually gonna hold you accountable for following Jesus. If you actually want us to oversee your profession and not just affirm it, well, then you have to do this second thing called joining the church. But if you'd like to just be affirmed and not held accountable, we're happy to just baptize you. Do you feel that tension? When we separate baptism from church membership, 
we're creating problems. When we keep them together, we avoid problems. And you won't find a distinction between the two anywhere in Scripture. People are baptized and the same people are added. It's not good for the individual when we separate those things. It's not good for our witness to the world when we separate those things. And and let's be honest, it reinforces our collective tendency to always be privatizing the sacraments. It's just about you and Jesus. No, it's not. No, it's not. Baptism recognizes someone has been united to Christ which means being united to his body too, which is why church membership follows immediately after baptism. And that is why I am thrilled that the four adults who are gonna get baptized in just a few minutes are all joining this church next Sunday. Isn't that exciting? So as we celebrate their baptism and they proclaim their faith in Christ and we see a symbol of their union with Christ, collectively we're anticipating next Sunday Whereas we formally welcome them into membership, we are acknowledging that they have, in fact, been united to the body of Christ, too. That's so important, friends. It's a precious gift of grace. It's not a merit badge. It's not an optional right. Baptism is the way, as a church, we publicly affirm a profession of faith that signifies that person's entrance into a new covenant relationship with God and with his people. I wanna take some time now to pray before we participate in baptism and ask the Lord to work those realities on their hearts. Let's do that together. Heavenly Father, I ask now as we prepare to hear and receive professions of faith. And then as a church, under the authority of our elders, to affirm those professions. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be aware of the missional significance of what is going on. Lord, today, as your people, we say to one another and to the world, You want to see Jesus? You want to know what he looks like? Not perfectly, but faithfully? Look at these men and women. Lord, it's a privilege to affirm their professions today. And we pray that as we do that, Lord, and as they make those professions in obedience to your word, that you would assure them that the objective realities that are true of you, Jesus, Death to the guilt of sin. Death to the power of sin. Life in newness of obedience are now theirs too. Grant assurance, we pray, in your precious name. Amen.